Good morning. I'm Tom Gilligan, the director of the Hoover Institution. Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. The Hoover Institution at Stanford University is one of our nation's leading research centers. Throughout our 100-year history, our work has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote individual, political, and economic freedom in the United States and around the world. The work of finding solutions to challenges brought on by world, the worldwide pandemic has never been more important than it is now. These briefings provide an opportunity to hear directly from our top scholars to inform the discussion on COVID-19 and where we go from here. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions today and encourage you to submit yours at the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Edward Lazier, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He is a labor economist and served at, in the White House from 2006 to 2009, where he was chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Ed, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be with you. Good. Uh, you're a labor economist, and that's your specialty. We've had a couple interesting reports uh, this week and today, the jobs reports and the initial unemployment claims reports. Can you talk about those a bit? What do they mean about the direction the economy is headed in? Okay, sure. Let me talk about the jobs report first. That was the one that came out today. Um, much to uh, labor economists, but pretty much everybody's surprise, the uh, number was a huge negative number, already down minus uh, 700,000 jobs, um, which is kind of on par with the kinds of monthly numbers that we were seeing during the 2007-2009 recession, the financial collapse. Um, and we're already there. Now, the reason I say it was a bit of a surprise is that uh, the way these numbers are gathered, they tend to be in the week of right around the 12th. I say tend to because there are a few days one side or the other. But basically think of it as the number is coming from a survey that's done on, in this case, March 12th. And we think of that as being before much of the action actually started. So the fact that we already saw a decline of 700,000 jobs by then was a little bit surprising to people. Many thought of it as bad news. Uh, I, I can give you a reason why it actually is good news, but let me come back to that. Okay. The more important number, I think you, you said there were two reports, Tom, and so the second report is really the one that we're most concerned about and we think we are getting the best information right now. And that is uh, the new unemployment insurance claims. So what happens when a worker becomes unemployed is he or she goes to the unemployment office. These are done at the state level. You go to the state unemployment office, you file a claim and you say, I'm out of work, I'd like to collect some benefits. They say, fine, uh, we assume you're actively seeking work. You have to answer yes to that question in order to be uh, entitled to those benefits. And then those numbers are recorded by the states. So if you go back uh, two weeks ago, like a, uh, back to the, um, the initial claims that we saw on Thursday a week ago, that number was 3.3 million. Yesterday's number was, was 6.7 million. So add those together and you've got 10 million newly unemployed workers. So that's a lot more than the 700,000 that we saw this morning. And that's the number that's more indicative of where the economy is right now and where it's headed. And the 10 million uh, new claims, uh, if we were to ask ourselves the question, what would be the unemployment rate if we were to calculate it based on that, what, what would it go to? 
Okay, so if you thought about the unemployment rate last month before we had the new claims, we were at 3.5%. This would push the unemployment rate up above 10% right now. So already we're at an unemployment rate of above 10%, which was actually the peak that we reached during the 2007 through 2009 recession. So we're already above that uh, and we've got a lot more coming. There's just no question that in the next couple of weeks we'll be seeing numbers pretty similar to the ones we saw in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And I don't expect it to bottom out for, for quite a while. Are the new unemployment claims uniform across all industries or are they affecting some industries more than others? Uh, right. No, that's a, a very good point. So if you look at the numbers, even this morning's numbers back from March 12th, uh, we already saw that the bulk of those job declines were in leisure, hospitality and uh, transportation. So uh, we know that the shelter, in the shelter in place rules that most governors have put into, into effect, uh, local uh, officials as well, uh, affected bars, restaurants, those are right in the center of the leisure and hospitality industry. Uh, and leisure and hospitality is a big deal. If you say, well, what proportion of our labor force is made up of leisure and hospitality and add to that the transportation workers, people in the airlines, we're talking about numbers like 22% of the labor force. So that's a very big number. Uh, if you look at the other end of the, you know, when you said, is it uniform? Uh, well, I just told you about the numbers at the, at the bad end, at the numbers at the good end would be people like yourself and me in um, business services, in educational establishments, professional services, legal law firms are still running. Uh, they're running virtually, but they're still running and you don't see anywhere near the same kinds of effects there. Now you do see effects on productivity. Uh, I always like to think people would rather see us in person than on the screens right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's a relatively minor uh, inconvenience as compared with having the uh, restaurants and bars shut down where they're completely out of business. Yeah, the way I like to think about this is if, if, you, if you depend on the travel and gather part of the economy, you're in trouble. If you depend upon the virtual economy, you're in pretty good shape. So Amazon is hiring a lot of people. Uh, so there are parts of the economy that are, that are actually doing well in this context. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what can we, is there a way to to take the unemployment claims and numbers and impute the impact that there were, were it's having on the economy? Yes, there's a, uh, there's a rule of thumb that a famous economist came up with a very long time ago, 50 years ago. Uh, and uh, that rule of thumb is that you take the increase in the unemployment rate, double it, and that gives you the effect on the economy. So if the increase in the unemployment rate, like take this week as an example, I said we went from 3.5% to about 10%. So that's a, an increase of about 65 7% uh, unemployment. You double that and you get a decrease in the economy of somewhere between 13 and 14%. Now, two, uh, just a couple of points on that, two caveats. One is that those estimates are based on uh, models that didn't include anything that comes close to what we're seeing right now with COVID-19. So uh, we're extrapolating from numbers from a, a more stable period. Um, and the second thing is those numbers are based on the unemployment rates lasting for a full year. So hopefully that won't happen. Hopefully this will be a temporary shutdown and we'll start coming back to work uh, in the near future, and we can talk about that later. Yeah. But to the extent that we come back soon, then the uh, the kinds of declines that we're thinking about for the economy will be much less pronounced.
Got it. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with Eddie Lazier. Eddie, let me follow up on uh, think a couple things you hinted at. You, you, you talked about the new unemployment claims being dramatically high. Uh, how much worse do you see them getting in subsequent weeks? Well, I would expect that we will see at least a doubling. So uh, I, I would, wouldn't be surprised if the kinds of numbers that we see with 10 million go to 20 million. Uh, that would imply unemployment rates of somewhere between 15 and 20 percent uh, during this period. That would not be a surprise at all. So um, obviously that's terrible news. Uh, no one wants to see that happen. Uh, but um, that's what the effect of the shelter in place is going to be. And uh, that implies, again, a short term effect on the economy during this quarter. We're going to see GDP fall. Uh, by, I would guess, uh, above 20%. But again, a short-run effect, uh, hopefully yeah. a short-run effect. And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, we'll want to talk about that and come back to it and think about what we have to do to get it to be short-run rather than long-run. But right now, that's definitely the short-run effect. Yeah, that, let's get to that. We have a question from Marcus who just cuts right to the chase. How quickly will the U.S. economy hit its nadir? How bad will it get? Yeah. And from there, when will we hit full recovery levels of employment? Okay, well, uh, you know, that's the central question. And of course, it's a difficult question. And uh, as, as you're well aware, economists always like to say on the one hand, on the other hand, so that we always hedge our bets. I won't quite do that. Uh, so let me let me go out on a limb and say, uh, give you a prediction, but I'm going to add a condition to that prediction. And the condition, of course, is based on the progression of the disease. And more importantly, on the progression of testing and identification of infective, infected individuals. So let me just pause for a moment, talk about why that's so important. Then I'll, uh, then I'll answer the, the fundamental question, which is how soon will it be before we get back? The reason that's key is that this is a different kind of recession. This is a recession that's based on turning off the supply, not turning off the demand. So the question is, how do we turn the supply back on? What would get the supply going again? And the answer is people have to go back to work. Businesses have to be willing to open up again. People have to be willing to go to those businesses. And that, of course, depends on identifying who is infected and separating the infected from the uh, vulnerable part of the populations. So right now we have testing, but we don't have widespread testing. And, and especially we don't have treatment. I mean, we have some treatment, but the treatment is not to the point where people feel comfortable saying, well, even if I get it, it's not that big a deal. It's kind of like a cold. You know, I, I take a couple of aspirin, I go to bed and I'm better in the next few days. This is not at that point. If the disease gets to the point where we either have herd immunity, which means that everybody in the community is already had it and is immune so that it won't spread, or we get to the point where we have a vaccine or we have a treatment, then I think people will come back. So let, let's be optimistic. Now I want to answer your question. Let's be optimistic and let's assume that we get to that point within a quarter. So by the end of June, we're at the point where people really can start going back to work then what that would do is we would see a one quarter of very significant declines, like the ones I talked about a few minutes ago, where I said, you know, something on the order of 20%. You'd see those declines, but then we'd bottom out. And when I say bottom out, that doesn't mean the economy is in good shape, but we'd have a zero rate of growth because we would have already suffered all the declines. 
I would expect then by fall quarter, we would start to come back. The economy would start to grow again. And uh, it probably would take another three, two to three quarters to get back to where we are now. So uh, realistically, six quarters out before we recover to the current state. And that's based on our getting going again back in early summer. Yeah, interesting. Let's, let's, uh, we have several questions about public policy associated with this. Um, yeah. How will the recently enacted financial steps affect your estimates of unemployment rate and overall? Let's just, let's just make sure everybody knows we're talking about the CARES Act. What's in it? How does that affect the way you think about the, uh, the development of unemployment going forward? All right. Well, there actually have been three acts. Uh, all of them uh, are designed to do the same thing. And, and when I say to do the same thing, what they've been designed to do is not to stimulate the economy, but rather to provide liquidity during this downturn. Liquidity is a word that economists use, uh, financial people use a lot. And the way you wanna think about liquidity is that even if you have lots of assets and you're very, you could be very wealthy, you still might not have the cash on hand to pay your bills. So a good business, a viable business, a very successful business might have on hand two, three months of cash. And the problem is when they run out of that cash, they can't pay their bills and they're not getting the revenues needed to keep the business going. So what all of these programs have been designed to do, and particularly the CARES Act that you just mentioned, Tom, which was the big one, the $2 trillion one that was just passed, uh, those are designed to provide liquidity to both businesses and to individuals so that they can weather the storm, get through this short run period without either going out of business or having to give up their houses, give up their cars and so forth. So that's the goal of those uh, pieces of legislation. And uh, to be honest, I think actually they've, they've all done a very good job. So um, if we think about what we're doing there and we're saying, you know, what, what is the effect of both the Federal Reserve and the uh, government, the Congress and the administration, the, those effects have been pretty good. So let me come to the question, because the question was how, how low will we go? How high will unemployment rates get? Um, given the kinds of actions that the government has taken, I would say to, to stabilize the economy, we're still going to suffer almost the same initial impact. That's the intention. Unfortunately, that's the intention. And when I say that's the intention, we're trying to shut down the economy. We're not trying to keep the economy going during this period of time. So if you try to shut down the economy and if you're successful in doing that, you're going to see unemployment get to 15, 20%. That's going to happen. Uh, but the goal, and I think this is at the heart of the, the questioners, uh, the issue here is how quickly do we get back? Does that unemployment rate persist? I would argue that the kinds of things that the government has actually undertaken uh, will do a good job in shortening and shortening significantly the amount of time that it takes for us to turn around. Yeah, just for context, that, that 15 to 20 percent unemployment number that you mentioned, put that in context. Is that <laughs> is that 0809? Is that great? Yeah, good. What, Good, good. So 0809, the peak in 0809 was 10%. So when we think of the Great Recession, the Great Recession was one third of the Great Depression. The Great Depression had rates in the mid to high 20s, unemployment. So what we're talking about now is looking at rates that are closer to the kinds of things that we've seen possibly during the Great Depression. The difference, of course, is the Great, the great Depression was a very prolonged period. It started in 1929. Uh, we had a 
recession that lasted about four years, came out of it from 34 to 37, in the late 30s again had another recession, and we really didn't come out of that until about 39, 40 when the economy started to take off again. So um, the goal here would be that even if we encounter the kinds of unemployment rates and we encounter the kinds of disruption in GDP and growth in output, uh, and in businesses that we saw during the Great Depression, that would be a very short run effect as compared to what we saw there. Yeah, good news. Uh, just to get into the weeds on this a little bit, the last initial claims number was 6.7 million. Right. The CARES Act was signed last weekend. Today, they're starting to process loans on the small business side. Right. The larger companies who get aid are starting to apply for those. Of the 6.7 million initial claims, do you expect some of those people to go back to work as a result of the CARES Act? Yeah, good question. Uh, the, the CARES Act is actually designed to get people back to work. The way the CARES Act is worded, uh, and this is particularly for the small business sector, so um, there, there are three, three kinds of businesses, 500 employees or below, middle-sized businesses, and then large businesses that are covered explicitly by another part of the program. But let's talk about the small businesses for a moment because um, that's the one that most people are concerned about. We worry that the small businesses are the ones that won't come back. And if they don't come back, employment doesn't come back in the small businesses. They have the option to actually lay off their workers in the short run. But as long as they have them back on the payroll by June 30th, they are entitled to some of, the, some of the benefits associated with the CARES Act. And in particular, the loans that they've gotten to cover the employees' wages will be forgiven. Uh, the good deal on that is that it means that the, sh the businesses during the short run don't have to pay out money to the workers. You say, well, what happens to the workers? The answer is the workers now can get unemployment, which has also been sweetened by the CARES Act. So the unemployment benefits now have gone up significantly. In fact, some workers, uh, and some people have criticized the act for that, some workers actually make more by being unemployed than they actually did on their previous jobs. And that varies state by state. It depends on the state unemployment compensation and so forth. But the generosity of the unemployment system has gone way up. And so that was designed to cover individuals, to cover the, per, the working person during this period of hardship so that they can pay their bills as well. Uh, but then again, uh, they should come back. Now, you, the, the question you asked was how many will come back? Mm -hmm. And I, uh, again, we have, we have some historical figures on this. It's hard to know the exact number because this situation is quite different from anything we've seen in the past. But during the period when the country had very high rates of unionization and high manufacturing, uh, layoffs were frequent and uh, people would be furloughed and then they would be recalled after the layoff. So this looks more like that kind of a thing. And you would see numbers up above 60% in terms of people going back. And when I say 60%, not, it wasn't 100% because the firms wouldn't recall everybody but in addition to that, the number of the people who were called would find other jobs as well during that period. So think of 60% with 20% not being recalled and another 20% going off and doing something else. Interesting. Here's a question from uh, Ian. And he, he must be a former student because he, he frames the question this way. I know Ed is big on employment to population ratio when measuring <laughs> employment statistics. So given what's likely to unfold, uh, which measurements should Americans put more stock in? 
as they're monitoring the increasing, increasingly grim news? What's <laughs> going to be most reflective of the reality on the ground? And this, this is related to the question you and I talked about. I mean, just because someone is employed in a company that's getting federal funds, if they're not working, really there's not much GDP being generated. So what, what do we want to look at going forward to yeah. understand the economy? All right, well, well, normally that, that's, that's great. Okay, so Tom, you, just, you, you raised a, another angle that I wasn't going to talk about, but let me come back to your angle as well. Uh, let me answer Ian directly. Yeah, I love the employment to population ratio. The reason I love it is because it cuts through all this stuff about discouraged workers and who's out of the labor force and who's in the labor force. So if I'm thinking about what is the economy really doing, that's still the right number to look at. You wanna look at the employment to population ratio. Always look at that number. It tells us the number of jobs that we have, the number of people working relative to the number of people in the population who could be working. So it kind of cuts through everything, it's bottom line. Now, during this period, and this comes to your point, Tom, during this period, I actually would look at another number that I don't usually focus on, and that's the labor force participation rate. Uh -huh. And the reason I'd look at the labor force participation rate is that in order to be in the labor force, you have to answer yes to the question that you are either working or actively seeking work. And in order to draw unemployment benefits, you actually have to be actively seeking work, or at least you have to answer that you are actively seeking work. Even if you're not, you gotta say, yes, I am, and usually they'll ask you a question or two, where did you look, and so forth. Now, the reason we don't want labor force participation to fall is that we want people to be, first of all, we want people to be getting benefits right now. It's really important that those people who are unemployed are actually getting benefits. If they're out of the labor force, they're not getting benefits. We need for those people to be getting benefits so that they're paying their bills, they're covering their liquidity needs as well. Uh, the second reason we want that labor force participation to stay high is that when we do flip the switch and we do turn the economy back on, we want those people coming back. So a few minutes ago, you just asked me a question, how many are going to come back? And I said, well, you know, based on historical records, uh, something like 60%, but 80% would be recalled. The other 20% would still come back. They'd just be coming back doing something else. Uh, if they're not in the labor force, if they're truly discouraged, if they get, if they retire, they're not coming back. At this point, that's not what we want. So uh, to Ian's question, I would say, this is the one time that I would say, don't only focus on the employment to population ratio, watch the labor force participation rate as well. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Eddie, I know you were in the White House during the time, 06 to 09, and there was a very serious financial threat there. Um, so I know you thought about this question within this current context, and Kurt puts it very directly. He says, what if any provisions would be helpful in a fourth economic relief package from Congress? What else would you do that's not been done? Well, the thing that's been talked about a lot is uh, infrastructure that uh, both Speaker Pelosi and the White House have been talking about infrastructure. Uh, you know, infrastructure is fine. I think of that as not a uh, not the kind of thing as stimulus. That's a kind of a longer term thing. So I, I wouldn't have that in the fourth package. Uh, I, I, I'm not even sure that we need a, need a fourth package right now. And the reason I say that is that we've done a very good job, we being the government, has done a very good job at providing the kind of liquidity that we need in the short run. I would not uh, jump the gun. Uh, if it turns out that when we go back to work, and hopefully that will be in another few months or so, maybe even before, 
when we go back to work, if we find that there is uh, deficient demand and that the kinds of traditional stimulus measures are necessary, I've never been a big proponent of those measures, but if one were going to engage in stimulus of any kind, it, it strikes me that that's the time to be thinking of that. The infrastructure is never a good stimulus kind of package because uh, even as uh, President Obama, who remember was a big advocate of that back when he took office in 2009, all the shovel ready stuff, and then a year later came out and said, well, I learned there's no such thing as shovel ready. Uh, we had actually done a study, we being myself and my group when I was in the White House in 2008, uh, right after President Obama had been elected, and uh, did a study on how effective it would be to do a stimulus package of that sort because we thought, well, you know, we already know we're in a recession. We know new presidents coming in. Maybe we should get going on it. And when we did that study, the, what we found is that for every dollar you spend, only about 25 cents of it goes out in the first year and then the other 75 cents trickles out over the next few years. So it's just, you have to spend a huge amount of money in order to get it into the economy. It's just not a very effective way to go. Yeah. Uh, John, you know, the $2 trillion uh, CARES Act, the, the ever-growing Fed balance sheet causes the, a natural question to arise. And I'm going to yeah. combine two questions to kind of get at it. Thomas asks, based on common sense and logic, I expect significant inflation within the next two years. Um, how does that, how's that going to affect, uh, impact pensions, social security, et cetera? John asks, is there a maximum let debt load for the economy? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to scribble these down so I don't forget them. So inflation and debt, um, I I'm less, let me do inflation first. I'm less concerned about inflation, at least in the short run. And I'll tell you why, uh, inflation tends to occur when the economy is not slack. So if there are idle resources, and in this case, they're gonna be a huge amount of idle resources in, in the form of labor and empty buildings and all kinds of supplies that are sitting on the shelves waiting to be used uh, in restaurants, bars, every place else, airplanes. Uh, you know, I know Tom, you know a good bit about the, air, uh, about the airline industry. You got, you got aircraft just parked, not going anywhere because those planes are not being used, and even the planes that are being used, you told me earlier, I think the, the rate is something like 9% utilization uh, in, a, in a given airplane. So a lot of slack in the economy. When there's slack in the economy, you don't tend to see inflation for a long time. And the best example is the labor market. So if you look at a labor market, you say, what happens when you start coming out of a recession? The first thing that happens is uh, people get recalled, the unemployment rate starts to come down, and then only later in the recovery do you see wages start to grow because right. when there's a very large pool of unemployed workers, you can bring those people back without having to pay higher wages. That's what happens. The same is true for the rest of the economy. So uh, inflation may be an issue down the road. I don't deny that. You know, uh, your, your uh, questioner said maybe two years, possibly, but in the near future, I don't think that's a major issue. Let me go to, your, to the second part of the question, which was debt. Um, you know, when you see numbers like the kinds of numbers we're seeing now, the $2 trillion, and you say, what is this going to do to our debt picture? It's scary. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. And, and you know, maybe one of the scariest parts of it is that no one's worried about it. No one seems to be talking about it. It's just a given that we need to get the money out there and no one seems to have raised concerns or very few anyway, have raised concerns about the debt. Uh, it's important to think about the debt and I certainly think about it. Uh, the reason I would be 
willing and I'm happy that the government actually passed the, the this legislation is because even though I think this debt is a, is a terrible thing to have to deal with, it's not the thing that's going to create the debt picture that we see over the long run. So if you look at the kinds of issues that we're going to be facing a decade or two out, what is going to grow the debt in the government? Uh, this is not it. This is a one-time shock of uh, a few trillion dollars. You know, bad news, no question, bad news. We've got to deal with it. We're going to have to repay it. But the kinds of things that grow the debt that actually change the curve, that steepen the curve, are things that have to do with our current entitlement program. So that means Medicare, Medicaid, currently Obamacare, and Social Security. Those are the big ones. And if you look at numbers from the Congressional Budget Office, which is about as close as you get to a nonpartisan agency in Congress, uh, in, in the government, they're part of Congress. Uh, if you use their numbers and you say, where are we going to be a couple of decades from now, they're talking about deficits that would be on the order of eight, nine, 10% per year. And that's without this current uh, stimulus package. So we're talking about growing the debt primarily as a result of the other part of the economy. What this does is it doesn't steepen the curve, it just shifts the curve up by that two or three trillion dollars. Not a good thing, but that's not gonna be the problem that we're dealing with down the road. Got it. Eddie, I have a lot of questions about what's going. How's this going to change the world down the road? Uh, okay. Ricardo, I'm going to I'm going to combine Ricardo and David's question a little bit. Ricardo asks: Many experts have argued that this crisis will have long-lasting effects on the supply chain, mm -hmm. as part you know both in a, a geopolitical and in terms of automation. Yep. David kind of reiterates this question: Can you please talk about your expectations for secular changes in the labor market? That is, how will COVID and the coming recession change how people work? Okay, good. Well, uh, uh, there, there are a number of aspects to that. Let, let me go to the automation first. I think that's in some sense the most straightforward. One of the things that we've learned from this is that we can work remotely a lot more effectively than we thought. Uh, I, just the fact that we're doing this uh, webinar right now and there are a number of people who are coming on and listening to it and, and Tom and I are having a pretty good conversation here. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I didn't think this was, I never would have thought this was feasible, but I've had many, many meetings of this sort. I'm teaching my whole course this quarter uh, online, and those things are discoveries that we've made, and I think we'll get better at it and become more effective at using this form of communication. That's a good thing. That's a compliment. Now, when I say it's a compliment, what that means is that enhances our productivity. That's one of the good things that comes out of this particular uh, uh, series of events. The bad thing I think uh, associated with automation, and I think this is what people always are worried about when we talk about automation, is that the benefits are not uniform across the economy. So, you know, we talk about our jobs, we talk about how we can do this pretty effectively, we think about computer technology, uh, artificial intelligence, all of those things being things that enhance our productivity, but there, there's the other side and that's the substitute. And when I say the substitute, there are some forms of technologies that actually substitute for workers, don't enhance their productivity. The obvious ones are things like robotics in uh, plants. You look at an auto plant, look at a steel plant is probably the best case in point. Steel plants used to have lots and lots of workers in them on the floor doing dangerous, uh, nasty kinds of work, but they were on the floor doing the work. Now, if you go to a steel mill, 
what you'll see are two or three people and computer in a pulpit up uh, operating the computer and almost no one on the floor. So that's, that's a substitute kind of technology. Now, why do we differentiate between substitute and complement? Because the complement stuff enhances productivity. It makes us better off. It, it helps our wages. The substitute stuff puts people out of work and lowers their productivity and hurts their wages. So what we will see happening as a result of automation and this particular uh, few month event enhances that, to my mind, is a widening in the productivity gap, the gap between the productivity of the top most highly educated workers and the productivity of the least educated workers. And I see that as, as the big problem. Uh, let me just pause. I, there's a, the second question on supply chain is going to take us off in a different direction. I'm ha I'll, oh, I'll answer it in a minute, but I just want to see if you have any comments on that part, uh, Tom, before I go on. Yeah, no, stick with, stick with the automation issue. I mean, um, are there any downsides to automation in the economy for, for labor productivity? Yeah, so, so the big downside, I think, is primarily the, the, uh, what we'll see is the, the spreading in what people always refer to as inequality. It's the difference between the wages at the top and the wages at the bottom. Wages tend to follow productivity. So if the productivity is at the top is going up, those wages are going to go up. If the productivity at the bottom is going down, those wages are going to go down. And the question is, what do we do about that? Now, you know, we could have a, a, an hour or two long seminar on just that issue alone. But the key issue there, of course, is how do we enhance the productivity at the bottom? And when I say the bottom, you got to be careful. People always think, oh, you're talking about the lowest 10, lowest 20% of wage earners in the economy. We're not talking about that. We're actually talking about the bottom half, the lowest 50%, because mm -hmm. that's where we're seeing the productivity gap starting to occur. The whole bottom half is lagging behind the top half. And so that's a big downside associated with the automation. So Eddie, give us an example of someone who's maybe not in the bottom 10%, but the bottom half that would be dramatically and negatively affected by automation. Okay. So, so type of worker. Yeah. So those would be, those would be people that historically in manufacturing. So relatively well-paid middle-class workers in manufacturing would be in that, in that category. I'll give you a personal example. Uh, there was a period in my life when my dad was a retail clerk in a grocery store. Okay, a retail clerk in a grocery store at that time was a very skilled occupation. Why? Because you had to, this is when I was a kid, they didn't have, they hardly had adding machines. Everything was mechanical. The cash register was were very primitive. You had to add up all the prices by hand figure out how much the customer owed you, make change and subtract. And so you had to do arithmetic. You had to be pretty yeah. facile at numbers. You had to remember all the prices in the stores. So those retail clerks actually got pretty good wages. It was a pretty skilled job. What happens? You invent computers, you invent scanners, you invent high-tech uh, uh, cash registers. Now all you have to do is just swipe the thing across the counter. Uh, that makes those jobs very much less valuable. And those people get killed by that kind of automation. Yeah, interesting. Talk about uh, supply chains and how you see those evolving after this is over. All right, so the supply chain issue is, is an important one. Uh, and most of us, I think, have thought about the supply chain as being pretty thick, pretty deep. Uh, and when I say thick and deep, it, it's even if we're getting a large part of our goods from one particular country, obviously China is the obvious example there, 
The, the concern hasn't been so great because we think of most of these goods as not being strategic and we think of our ability to substitute from one country to another as being pretty good. So for example, if all of a sudden we can't get stuff from China, we can go to other parts of Southeast Asia, we can go to India, we can go to other countries that can supply the same kinds of goods. That's how we thought about it. I think uh, even people like myself who are free traders and are very much in favor of having open markets and very low tariffs uh, have, have had a little bit of an eye-opening on this particular one. And I think we recognize now that there are particular strategic goods that we do have to be concerned about. The obvious case in point during this crisis is, is antibiotics. Uh, we, you know, if we're getting all of our drugs and antibiotics from one country and that country has the ability to turn that off, we are at a, a strategic disadvantage and it, it, it is a very dangerous situation. So I think as we go forward and we think about supply chains, uh, we may want to have a much more diversified supply chain. Doesn't have to all be national, doesn't have to be all be U.S., doesn't have to all be local, but it does have to be diversified so that we can't be held hostage by any single country. Yeah. Uh, our colleague, Ken Judd, asked the following question that'll give you a chance to reflect on your experience in government. Okay. In, two, in 2008, federal bailouts often required firms to give the government equity. The yeah. AIG and GM were examples of, of this. The CARES Act talks about equity positions as a possible tool, by, but it gives the Treasury a lot of flexibility. Why is there less emphasis on equity for the government this time compared to 2008? Good. Okay, Ken. Uh, that's a great question because Ken has been thinking a lot about this and Ken has a lot of very good ideas on this. Um, I, I wish he had time to elaborate on those on, on this program itself because he, he's actually thought about it. Let me tell you a little bit though about the differences now and then in terms of what I think the government's doing. So uh, I don't wanna put words in, in, in the government's mouth. Treasury Secretary has a lot of discretion over how they actually implement this. The way it was done in 2007, was a little bit different. It was uh, it, it was stated as equity, but it wasn't really equity in the traditional sense. Two reasons: one, the government didn't take voting rights in that from that equity. So uh, when for, when in two thousand and seven, if you th think about the TARP, the TARP stood for Troubled Asset Research Program. Uh, re uh, sorry, TARP was the troubled asset uh, program that put money back into the financial sector. And what we did during that was we bought up preferred shares. Now, again, this is sort of technical jargon, but what a preferred share does is it gives you ownership in the company, but not necessarily voting rights. And coupled with that ownership was that the firm had the option to pay that back. So it really worked as a loan more than as equity. It didn't, it didn't work in equity in the, in the traditional sense. That was pretty effective. Uh, and when I say pretty effective, the tra taxpayers actually made money on that program. The only exception was actually the auto industry. But in terms of the banking sector, the taxpayer made money on that. We got the money back. It's conceivable that that could be done in the same way right now. Um, the reason I say conceivable, I think the details are still being worked out. And to be honest, 
The details had to be worked out even back in 2008 when we did that. We announced the program, uh, the Trouble Asset Relief Program, in one particular way, and then we ended up implementing it in a completely different way. So, uh, you know, you, you learn stuff as you go along. You think you know what you're going to do, and then you realize, hey, that didn't work. We got to shift gears here. And my guess, Ken, is that uh, these guys are kind of learning their way. It's unfortunate that we have to do that, but they are. Um, the one thing, I, 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 let me just finish with one thing on, on sure. Ken's point. The, the one thing I think is that, uh, again, coming back, the Fed did learn a lot of lessons from looking back at 2008. And I think that they, um, uh, as a result, were able to implement things much more quickly and without some of the same stutter steps that we did back in 2008. So um, it's not like you don't learn from past crises. I think yeah. we did learn. Seems to me too, Eddie, the CARES Act is different in that it imposes conditions or restrictions on firms that get aid, such as maintaining your payroll at a certain level, yeah. maintaining service levels that you wouldn't otherwise do. So there are, there are a lot of differences that make an easy comparison uh, complex. That's right. And, and the question is, you know, part of this is a, is a fairness issue and part of this is an efficiency issue. And to be honest, in the... Uh, when you're in a crisis like this, I tend to focus more on the on the efficiency side rather than on the fairness side. Uh, that may sound like a bad thing. You know, you can go back and you can look at the previous crisis and you say, man, why did you guys do this? You know, why didn't you cut a better deal for the taxpayers in retrospect? And there are plenty of things that we did when I look back at it and I say, gee, I wish we cut a better deal. But the, the point is you don't want to cut it too close. The most important thing right now is to make sure that firms have liquidity. And there will be things that we do today that we will look back at and say, gee, I wish we would have done it better. But I would rather err in the direction of what's called a false positive error than a false negative error. A false positive error is you did it and after the fact you wish you hadn't. A false negative error is you didn't do it and after the fact you wish we had. At this point, I think we want to err in the direction of doing it and saying, all right, well, we made a mistake. Maybe that wasn't such a great idea. But I'm just much more concerned that businesses have the ability to withstand this shock, even if it means that after the fact, we look back at it and we say, gee, you know, maybe that wasn't such a great way to do it. Yeah. Eddie, you're an expert on human capital development uh, as a matter of public policy. What's going on? How has COVID-19 affected that particular public policy problem? Yeah, it's, you know, that's a, it's one that I think is disguised, but it actually turns out to be a big deal. Um, so uh, uh, most of you have if you have kids, your kids are out of school right now. Almost all the schools in the country have been shut down. Uh, and that seems like a temporary thing. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Uh, you know, if you're a Stanford student, uh, you have the benefit of being able to do courses online. If you're a first grader, you try to do a course online. My daughter is a first grade teacher locally. And, um, you know, it's pretty hard to get a, a first grader motivated to, to sit there and do a conversation like this and do your homework and so forth. So um, even if they continue with the school year, if they do it in this way, almost all of that human capital is going to be lost. And you say, well, you know, so what? It's just three months. The kids are only six, seven years old. Who cares? The answer is three months is actually a lot. Each year of schooling produces about 8% of additional productivity. So if you lose three months, what you're talking about is losing 
two months of productivity in an individual's life. Now, it's possible they'll make up for it down the road a bit, but uh, you're talking about a pretty significant cut in human capital. So there are some long-term effects, not only, by the way, in schools, same thing in the labor market. If you're in the labor market, you're learning, especially young workers, that 8% number is about the same there. If you're a young worker, you're your productivity is going up at about 8%. Your wages are going up at about 8% uh, as a young worker. And you're going to be missing that for this three-month period. So that's not a trivial hit. Interesting. Uh, Eddie, we reached the end of the time. Uh, do, you ha- do you have any concluding remarks you'd like to share with us, particularly if, if they're of a silver lining type nature? Well, the, silver, the best silver lining, I would say, is because this recession is different from the traditional recession, We do have the hope that we can come out of it quickly. Uh, You know, people keep saying when we turn the switch back on, I don't think it's quite that easy, but it's a lot easier to come out of a recession like this than it is to come out of a recession that is like the 2008 financial crisis. That was a completely different animal. This one is one where one has the ability to be optimistic. Uh, Again, kind of we talked about a little earlier, you know, some of the other parallels. This is more like coming out of World War II, where all the soldiers were overseas. They were taken out of the labor force. They can be brought back into the labor force pretty rapidly. I think the same thing is true here. And so that's the silver lining. We we do have the the hope that this thing can turn be turned on uh, more quickly. Got it, Eddie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remarkable, remarkable conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. I want to remind everybody that our next virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, April seventh at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern. The title of the uh, briefing will be COVID-19 and the Economy, and our guest will be John Taylor. John Taylor is a senior fellow in economics at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics at Stanford University. John served as the Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs under President George W. Bush. You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. If you'd like to see more fellow analysis on the coronavirus, go to our website, hoover.org, where we have a section dedicated to COVID-19 research. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today. I want to wish you a healthy and safe weekend, and I look forward to seeing you in the future. Bye-bye.